Would everyone like to please take a seat? Welcome to M Pavilion, Waminji Ka. My name's Natalie King. I'm Creative Associate at M Pavilion. We acknowledge the Bunwarang as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and pay our respects to their ancestors and elders, past, present and into the future. Tonight's M Talk is hosted by the VCA's research cluster, Art, Social and Spatial Practice, which is part of an ongoing series of salon-style conversations. Tonight's event will be co-hosted by my colleague at the VCA, James Oliver, and Mick Douglas from the Performing Mobilities Conference and RMIT. So now I'll hand over to Mick and James, who will set the scene for tonight's conversation. Good evening, everyone. And welcome from us, yes. Um, just to set the scene or the context a little bit more, the Art ASP, the Art Social and Spatial Practice Research Cluster. It's one of three uh, clusters at the VCA. Um, and as Natalie said, amongst the things we do, one of them is a sort of what we call food for thought events, uh, which are pop-up, salon style. We normally have them in Lionel's Cafe at the VCA, which is um, comfortable, perhaps not as beautiful as here. Um, so I'll just read you the blurb to give you further context for what ASP is before I go any further. The art, social, and sp I, obviously I'm just feeling a bit of professional responsibility here to my employer. The art, social, and spatial practice uh, cluster seeks to investigate the potential of both the material and social production of art as object, performance, spatial practice, or relational experience. The cluster will foster cross-disciplinary research dialogue and opportunities for collaboration. It addresses the spatial and social relevance of context central to contemporary art practices and art in public and institutional spaces. So, I, you know, I think in a, in a sense, um, just being in this venue is a bit of a representation of that in itself. So, again, welcome to the conversation. Um, in my culture, which is the Gaelic culture of the Scottish Hebrides, we have this quite famous word called Cayley. Um, some of you, if you've ever gone to Scotland, might have been at a Cayley. Um, now, common to misapprehension, even at a national level, uh, Cayley isn't actually a dance. That's why everyone associates it with a bit of Cayley music, Cayley dancing. Cayley actually is from the Gaelic word for basically coming together and coming together in our culture in the Hebrides is, well, other than being mediated through the Gaelic language historically, it's also about this relationship between um, story, I guess, and the relationship between story as an everyday practice of culture as effectively a performative and artistic way of being in the world. <clears throat> so I'm just saying that very broadly to expand your notion even of what the conversation and might be today. Um, we have Mick Douglas here from RMIT University, if you don't know him. He's also well, someone I work with quite a lot. Um, he's also, we've been collaborating on a project in the city, which Mick is the chief curator of and artistic director called Performing Mobilities. 
um, which some of you may have inter interacted with already. Uh, there's a Margaret Lawrence Gallery exhibition at the minute and an RMIT Gallery exhibition and there's also a leaflet over there about that. Um, next to Mick we have Keg D'Souza. Keg is a Sydney-based artist um, and uh, is visiting Melbourne, as you can see. She's <laughs> We've harangued her into all sorts of activities in the last seven or eight days uh, with performing mobilities and the VCA and now MPVL. And at the end there we have Marshall Weber. Uh, Marshall is in New York City, uh, well, no, Brooklyn-based actually, uh, artist um, and uh, curator and activist, I guess. He's been in the performance arts scene for quite a number of years. Um, now, I think the way I would, I'm going to get Meg Keg and, and uh, Marshall to say a bit about their practice, and we're happy to open out. Do we have a roving mic? Yeah, I'm really pleased to have questions and comments from, from the audience. Um, but we'll get them to talk a bit about their practice. I'm going to start with Keg first, because Keg and I actually have a connection, <laughs> other than the obvious one I have with Mick, which is glasses and beard, obviously. Yeah. Um, and beer. And beer. <laughs> Cheers. Um, or slancher. <laughs> Keg did a project on the Isle of Skye last, um, last summer, 2014, yeah? Yeah. So I'm going to ask her to tell you a little bit about that in terms of story, art and performativity. Yeah. So, hi. Um, so uh, my practice really focuses on uh, spatial politics. So I trained as an architect and then in Perth and then I moved to Sydney and I started squatting and obviously I diverged from there and became more interested in social space um, and the, pa the way that people interact within within the built environment. Um, and that sort of led me through this um, to the point where I am now, where I sort of do a lot of social practice projects, um, work with people. Um, and so I've been looking a lot, um, a theme that seems to be coming up a lot for me is displacement. And um, also, I guess, looking at special politics through food and food as a metaphor for displacement. Um, the I'm also interested in how food can open up ways that we can talk about place. So this is kind of um, what I was doing in Sky. Um, I was in um, Kilmuir, which is in, uh, it's the last Gaelic parish in, in the Isle of Skye. And um, I was based at a, I was working with an arts organisation called Atlas Arts and everything they do is out of gallery. So they based me in the local primary school and it was, just before I went up there, I was doing a residency at this place called Delphina Foundation, which is in central London, like Victoria. So when I got up to Sky, I had this complete culture shock just from the lack of people around because I was so used to seeing all these people. And my first night there, I was staying in a little wooden hut and I was like, I'll just go for a walk and, you know, see, see what's around. And I walked for an hour and a half and I'd only seen sheep. And it was like, it was pretty amazing. And then I was so, sort of went over to these sheep when I got really excited and they all just ran away and I was like, oh. Um, but anyway, so back to the primary school. And um, so I was working with these kids and um, I, I'd done previous, in, previous to this in London, I'd um, done this picnic where um, I cooked traditional English food as a way to talk about space. So um, I made these 
cucumber sandwiches um, as a way to talk about class and privilege. So um, as I'm kind of interested in how various foods can open up this dialogue because cucumber sandwiches historically were eaten by the English aristocracy to sort of assert their privilege because they had almost no sustenance. So it was a way to say, well, we don't need any energy because we have other people to do our labour for us um, and these kind of things. So like all, and all these foods sort of like say the ploughman's lunch was invented by the cheese bureau as a way to boost cheese sales after the world war ii rations ended and i was kind of interested in how all these foods um and their stories and had these links back to colonization so like with the cucumber sandwiches the cucumbers the seeds came from india and same with the ploughman's lunch the pickles were they were also adapted for them to be milder and sweeter for the english palate but they you know, came, obviously came from India um, and like through the various colonies and through the cuisines. And so when I went up to Sky, I was interested in how this same format that I'd used with adults um, could be used with um, working with kids. And it was kind of this like, I guess, pedagogical experiment in some ways because you're in a school, they're so used to, you know, they, they started off being like, oh, I should, I was the Australian coming to teach us, you know, and I was like really clear about changing this language about me being a teacher. Um, so I, I build inflatable structures. So I had made this one that is like a gingham fabric because um, I'm kind of interested in, in this way that these temporary structures can, um, you know, relate to my experiences being a temporary person in the area and an outsider and um, got the kids to cook their own, cook, bring in these recipes, these traditional crofting recipes, and I cooked those and we talked about place. And so as we spoke, I mapped the conversation onto the ground. So at the end of the picnic leaves this trace of this like really intense dialogue. And what was really astounding in Skye is the really strong connection to food and place because Skye is um, a crofting community and so that's traditional Highlands Scottish subsistence farming. Um, and so their connection to land and food was so embedded um, and the map was so much more dense than the one that was produced in London. Um, is that enough? Because I feel like I'm like... You're not hungry. <laughs> You're not finished story. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, it was, it, was really, it was really interesting in that way how how these stories that they they shared with me and the ability to be able to kind of come out of that project and I produced a publication and made this map um, off their dialogue and just they were like oh you know it was it was me it was really clear for me to be able to express to them that this is all the things they had taught me about place but through their food and it was like I was kind of just navigating some way to put it together um, but to give it back to them. Okay, cool, thanks. Um, I think picking up on that uh, blurring, if you like, of um, everyday social practice and everyday cultural practice in, in terms of its intersection, if you like, with you and your practice as an artist is interesting. And you, you, know, you didn't want to be called a teacher, but as an artist, you're still involved in this pedagogical, if you like, sorry for the jargon, uh, project. Um, did you, how, did they feel that it was that? I mean, you might not have directly asked them that, but was there any, what was the responses in from the young people um, in terms of they, being engaged in that yeah, project? They really embraced me. I think, you know, I was wearing like some bright colored knitwear and just felt really like one of them. And I think they didn't see, they didn't see this hierarchy in the same way. Like they, they definitely had a very different 
um, relationship to their teachers, obviously mm. who they know really well, but um, the way they spoke to me um, was really different. Did they see yeah. art differently? What's that? Did they have an understanding of what you might be doing before you went there? No. 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 So... <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> but there's a link that... One of the reasons to mention the word pedagogy is actually a segue into Marshall, who I think sees that language quite central to his practice uh, in many ways. And there's another connection because Keg and Marshall uh, have worked together in New York in the last six months, maybe? Yeah, re very recently. So, uh, yeah, I'm handing the microphone to you, Marshall. What's uh, your experience of working with the... Uh, I guess, art in social realms like Keg there? Um, whenever I, someone asks me what I do or what kind of art I make, I'm, I'm kind of really at a loss because it's both really simple in the sense that I'm primarily a performance artist who um, is always performing. So there's never, uh, there's no delineation for me between everyday life and art and performance. So um, sometimes I'm a teacher, sometimes I'm a political activist, sometimes I'm an artist, sometimes I make visual art, sometimes I do performance work. Um, I'm very interested in moving the uh, public sector into the private sector and actually limiting the private sector's access to the public sector, kind of like um, bringing the streets into the corporations and um, expanding public space. So uh, a lot of work that I do is literally on the street, which is why I love this venue, because this is kind of a, it's a park. And I do a lot of work in public parks. And so I'm not, you know, the only thing I could think of is just to tell a story um, of, of maybe a bit of work I've done in Australia here, and maybe if there's time, expand a little bit into uh, my international work. Um, and when I say I work on the streets, part of my practice is I, 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 I literally work on the street. Um, I'm very interested in historical memory and uh, in, in the memory of what is literally embedded around us and what we walk over and what we forget and the communities that are displaced and forgotten and then the memorials to those communities that memorialize their absence and their removal as much as themselves and, and then those memorials are forgotten. So there's kind of like layers of forgetting. I'm really interested in peeling them off and representing them kind of to, to, to honor you know, histories and people and to move culture back into the street and kind of out of the institutions and into the communities. Some dialogues like this are really important to me. A lot of what I do as a visual artist is I, I, I do rubbings. I go and I, I travel a lot, so I'm constantly confronted with historical markers. And what I try to do is re-edit them into structures and presentations that reflect local histories. So I, I was here in Fe February and March, and I was traveling all around Australia, and I was doing rubbings from historical markers, which is a project I actually started here in 2006. Um, so this is a book called Wara Wara Why, which is um, in Aboriginal dialect that was from Sydney, and the indigenous peoples of Botany Bay were shouting that at Captain Cook when he was trying to land there. And it basically means go away. 
And I, I, so I went out to uh, various places in Australia. So this again, it, they're wax rubbings from the actual locations. So on one side of the paper, you have this wax rubbing. On the other side, you have embedded bits of these various locations in Australia. So it's kind of like a scientific elemental survey. There's, Australia is literally embedded in the pages of this book. And it's a travelogue. So it's about really the Pacific Rim, and it's about the roots of colonization. So the maps are vintage nautical maps from the 90s, and they're origin countries. So there's maps from Scotland and Ireland and uh, all over Europe, uh, Greece, and other countries where colonization came from. And then there's maps from the uh, Pacific and you know destination. And I've kind of done rubbings to kind of weave this story of colonization, and, and in a way, a story that um, supposes that there's kind of a brighter future, there's that, that, that really conflict is not inevitable, and that kind of by acknowledging culture, sharing culture, which I know is part, it's a very, uh, to me, an impressive part of the, uh, the acknowledgments that happen in Australia which I, I think is quite brilliant. And um, I think it would be interesting if those acknowledgments would happen in the United States. So this book kind of gives you a little tour of you know, a little bit of Sydney from King's Cross, a little bit of the history there. And so I saw a little bit of American history reflected in here. And I, there's something called the American Invasion, which obviously continuing with my presence here. But we go along. And you'll recognize some familiar structures. So there's some abstraction. There's some very specific pieces in here. For instance, the New South Wales government drains to the ocean. And I know most people in New South Wales know that, but it was interesting to find that out while I was here. So there's stories about King's Cross. I was really interested to find that Carlotta uh, was the first actually surgically uh, enhanced trans person, perhaps globally, from uh, the early 1960s in Sydney. And so there's a whole queer history that's embedded in King's Cross that I found very interesting. You'll see a lot of Melbourne in there from Gertrude Street. I kind of tracked um, some of the history of the Aboriginal community in uh, Melbourne. Pennies from the United States forming the waterways. Uh, here is uh, the Victorian, I, I, I can read this to you. Established in 1973, the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service was the first Aboriginal community-controlled health and dental service in Victoria. Originally at 229 Gertrude Street, the health service relocated to this building and operated here from 1979 to 1993. As well as improving the basic health of Aboriginal Victorians, the health service developed a holistic approach to community health initiating a range of important organizations such as the Fitzroy Stars Aboriginal Community Youth Club Gymnasium, Incorporated Cori Coley, um, and on and on and on. What was interesting about this is I thought, wow, these are still really good ideas. You know, these are still concepts that like really ring true, especially to me as an American that comes from a country with no national health care. I was like, hmm. And so then we go on, and I kind of tied together some international figures like Jose Marti, the uh, Latin American freedom fighter, because the history of the Pacific Rim is kind of a history of colonization that's pretty shared, you know? So you have Spanish, Dutch, English, kind of like conquering the Americas and the Pacific. And the relations go back and forth. 
So I was interested in kind of the, the tale for, of liberation as, as much as the tale of colonization. This is from a war memorial in Brisbane. This is in San Francisco. I also kind of try to pick up on indigenous history, which is kind of a lot sparser. And I thought it was interesting that there's a lot of um, communications between indigenous communities around the world and the Canadian and First Nations are uh, especially close to some of the Aboriginal communities here in the United States, I mean here in Australia. And so there is some communications with American, you know, United States First Nations, Canadian First Nations, Aboriginal indigenous people, indigenous people in Taiwan. So there's a whole kind of alternative global kind of association of indigenous communities that is, that is building, actually. This is classic. So I went out, to, um, took me an hour and a half to get out to Cornell on Botany Bay. It's really a dismal place. It's a, um, now an oil refinery. And this is the plaque that describes the first encounter, of Captain Cook and the indigenous peoples here. And what's interesting about it is it's very honest in a way, in a way that I think was kind of eliminated over the course of the 20th century. I mean, what this basically says is we got there, um, people seemed to not be happy that we were there, so we shot them and then we landed. And I'm trying, I think of like kind of the convoluted denial that you have with a lot of history now. I mean, you don't see a lot of plaques that like trace this kind of history. It was very interesting to find it out there with the, the mists of oil kind of like swirling around you. Oh, these are, you might know these, these are, um, or you might not, but these are from your parliament. They are, there are rocks in front of the parliament that have these fossils embedded in them. So what usually happens to me as I'm on the street rubbing or on these, you know, climbing up these monuments is I meet a lot of law enforcement people and uh, security people, but I also meet a lot of just regular folks who ask me, what the, you know, what are you doing? And what often happens is I will reveal these local memorials to people. And so there, I met a guy there who had actually worked at parliament and he was like, I really never noticed that these things were here. I always wondered why those rocks were there. So it's, it's interesting to kind of reveal uh, the, the culture. And a lot of the rubbing pieces are important to me because I'm actually, it, it's more of communicating to people. You know, it's more of the performance that happens right on the spot. And this, this object is produced, but I feel it's the performances inform the object. So we go on and on with, with Captain Cook and then uh, St. Mary's and a little bit more of Sydney and then a little bit more of Melbourne and then kind of a giant mix-up. Uh, the constant memorialization of war is interesting to me. Mm -hmm. So let silent contemplation be your offering. And then, of course, in Brisbane, we have the, the apology plaque, which is um, stuck, interestingly, in the botanical gardens in a little plot well away from any of the war memorials, uh, very low to the ground, almost impossible to find. Uh, but it's, it's a pretty astounding kind of plaque and document. And, and part of the reason why it's astounding because of this, it was said, it was seen, and then it was never seen again. <laughs> Thanks, Marshall. Um, 
So on that, I mean, you've both talked about, I guess, the movement of um, your bodies into other cultures. Um, Mick and myself had a similar experience in the US. Uh, our bodies moved into that cultural space. It was also a very um, yeah, geological space, kind of very extraordinary encounter with time in that sense, in terms of geological time. And um, that was because we were working on a project about uh, connected to the performing mobilities ultimately, but it was about the circulation of things, as I guess, as it was as um, about sta um, you know more traditional notions of culture and human behaviour. So I don't know, Mick, maybe this is a point to bring you in and ask you about your interest in the circulation of stories through art and performativity, but maybe mm. specifically through things. Not that that map book is not a thing, of course. Yeah, maybe there's two um, examples that are coming to mind in this particular setting. Um, and the first one is maybe a, a project which did not take off, a failure of a sort, because I think that's an interesting example of where the seeds of some possible interventions come from. And that was when I was travelling with my family um, by car from Melbourne to Perth and back again, as I also grew up in Perth and had travelled by hitchhiking and buses and $200 Holdens and $400 Holdens in my early youth. Um, but with my young family, we were driving across to Perth and on, I think, the 23rd or the 24th of December, we passed through the border of Border Town border of South Australia and Western Australia and we were confronted by um, the quarantine check to stop the circulation of fruit and vegetables from entering Western Australia. So your car is asked to pull over and there are large skip bins there and please just empty all of your fruit and veg in there and there were streams and streams of cars going past and I asked some questions like there must be a lot of stuff going into those bins now. Yeah, I got some statistic of this time of year. It's a huge number of kilograms of fruit and veg that needed to be disposed because of the quarantine check about you know, it's not trying to transmit fruit fly and other diseases between areas of land. That kind of struck my imagination along with another event, which was that pulling up to fill up your vehicle with another load of fuel was kind of every day and kind of not all that stimulating, although roadhouse culture is kind of interesting. But what was really interesting, um, as the air conditioning in our um, just could make it across the Nullarbor car um, collapsed and it was above 40 degree temperatures in the Nullarbor plain day after day and we were trying to drive pretty quickly, and we would come across a couple of structures um, not quite as, I don't know, articulated as this one, but large uh, corrugated iron structures in the middle of no other evident um, form of trade or living going on, um, which would have rainwater tanks to capture the uh, rare rains from these large shade structures. So it between 12 and whatever, 4 in the afternoon, uh, these big structures were a delight to go, ah, we don't need fuel, we don't need ice cream, we just want to have a break and there's water, we can refresh our 
um, water with rainwater from the Nullarbor Plain. So other people would be gathering in these um, locations and we would start conversations which we had not experienced in roadhouses to that point and started meeting from people from Dubbo who were telling us a little bit about their journey and what was motivating that and um, then I think the starter motor in our car also stopped working so we needed a push to roll start the car and that was an adventure for my young daughters and we'd get other people involved in that. So the kinds of social exchange started to become really interesting in these um, uh, environments. So on the way back from Perth to uh, Melbourne, which was then in mid to late January, <clears throat> I proposed to my family, oh, let's, 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 let's spend a, an extra day and night in Bordertown and maybe we can do something with those fruit and veg. So it became a little bit of a family kind of thing within our um, holiday itinerary. I proposed, well, let's stop at Norseman and we'll get some paint and we'll also get some cardboard boxes and some sticks um, so then we set up a, a series of road signs um, and the text on the road signs that we collectively painted was um, your fruit and veg, that was sort of your fruit and veg in exchange for, in the tradition of great road signs that are paced with the speed of your travel so you only get one bit of the sentence at a time over a kilometre or so. Um, your fruit and veg in exchange for um, free lunch. So we simply set up the stove that we had and a big pot and we collected the fruit and veg that we had that we were otherwise going to have to surrender to the bins and just thought, oh, maybe we could just have a, a continual pot of food and see who might stop and what kind of conversations we might have in addition to the ones we had under these canopies. Um, and of course the traffic, so we then learnt, was much less <laughs> in mid to late January than on the 23rd or 24th of um, December uh, and no one seemed particularly interested in stopping and were very suspicious about what is this free lunch? <laughs> is there such a thing? Um, so nobody stopped. <laughs> so we then went to um, the immigration, not the immigration, the um, border control um, quarantine office and you know, delivered plates of you know, non-stop curry to them. In fact, I think it was quite a few plates to them. So it was a kind of a failed kind of project, but the impetus for it um, kind of really mm. interested me. Maybe to kind of build on top of that, um, I mean, currently I'm doing a, uh, as a part of my, well, one of my contributions to this Performing Mobilities project that's on now at the galleries, um, uh, as a part of this international series of performance studies, research and performance art projects is a series called Circulations in which I've been following salt as a medium, as a material, as an element in the hydrological cycle and as a material that's richly inflected in different cultures and histories um, for its varying significances, whether that be um, symbolically or ritually or in terms of exchange. Um, so I knew nothing about salt and no particular kind of interest in it, but I don't know, it came around as a um, medium. So uh, in about 
five different locations in the last 18 months. I've done these projects that do try and tap into the local specificity of salt and how it has a cultural significance. Of course, it was a, um, a primary material of commodity exchange and monetary exchange prior to monetization. Um, the increased um, understanding of ways of using salt uh, enables the uh, preservation of food and therefore the settlement of societies and the shift from nomadic um, subsistence agricultural practices. Um, uh, and of course it's significant in terms of the way in which it circulates now and how people are implicated in the circulation of salt in different kinds of ways, such as in our local region. Um, the extraction of water from the Murray-Darling Basin, increasing the rise of salinity levels in that agricultural um, uh, territory and the um, negative impacts that that has upon uh, the very agricultural practice that is causing its um, uh, problems. And then we have the Wonthaggy desalination plant um, built in the time of the drought. Uh, which has yet to deliver um, a litre of water into Melbourne's water supply as the drought subsided. But there's this you know, great, some people call it the gold plating of infrastructure, um, kind of sitting there, which may be really useful in the future, or it might be superseded and inefficient and um, technology by the time it gets to be used. Um, so I'm kind of interested in the ways in which because uh, you've asked me to talk about material or, or non-human kind of aspects. I'm interested in the way that, that human uh, behaviour and um, organisational aspirations to control the circulation of material has these interesting effects, but salt also seems to exceed all of these effects, despite our best intent. Great. Thank you. Um, I think what I'm going to do there is link themes of interference and failure there. Um, interesting, we, we had earlier on this year, we had an ASP event that was actually on the theme of failure, so another reason to pick up on it. And as you told two stories, uh, I'm now going to ask Keg and Marshall, if you don't mind, um, to tell us another story about failure. So I'm wondering, <laughs> failure is like a performativity of art and story in another way. Um, yeah, Keg. Um, well, in the most literal sense, um, working with uh, temporary structures and inflatables, I mean, there's, yeah, there is a tendency, like the inflatables I built, like I sort of designed this system that uses like these double skins so they kind of, um, so you can have an opening that go you go in and out of so it has a constant airflow in it but still I built this one of the ones one of the gingham ones I built was made out of like the thinnest tablecloth fabric you could ever imagine it's like it was more paper than plastic and I was like you know what this is part of it this is part of like I was talking I was thinking a lot about temporality and like temporary communities and all this kind of stuff and I was like this is going to embody this idea it's going to be great and it was quite amazing because like during one of the picnics it was just like you just hear this pop and then this like one of the little things sort of bulged out and then all these kind of bulges started to happen and it was just it still stayed up which was kind of amazing and then at one point we got the roll that 
um, the table, this tablecloth had come on and like propped it up in the corner and it was still like everything still worked around it and it was kind of like the failure embodied these ideas just mm. by chance mm. in some ways but um oh, where was yeah. that um that was in london yeah <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> marshall you've got a failure story and then we might ask see if anyone wants to ask a question about the practices here yeah I, I, you know sometimes failure just leads to another success and um I had another, I, there was a, a festival called the Streetopia Festival in San Francisco that I was one of the fundraisers and producers for. And then the organizers asked me to do a performance there. So, uh, and the kind of the premise behind this festival, which was two months long and featured, oh, about 150 events and three different exhibits and a lot of different site-specific works, was, you know, what if you had an arts festival that wasn't about selling art? Now, what if it was an art fair where nothing was for sale? And what if it was an art fair, not for rich people and collectors, but for people in the communities that the fair was held in? So um, this is the uh, catalog for the Streetopia Festival. But what it kind of turned into was a look at gentrification and displacement and ways to deal with it. And so part of the festival featured a free cafe that operated for six weeks, a health center, an herbal education center, um, there was the Drug Users Union had um, an architectural firm design spaces and buses for intravenous drug injection and harm reduction. Um, artists like Barry McGee decorated some of these spots and it became a huge kind of festival kind of to confront the kind of money bombing development that's happening in San Francisco and in cities worldwide as kind of global capital goes around and, and develops communities, kind of replacing urban culture with suburban culture. So I, I, if you, you, know, you can get this online. I have a few copies with me also. But the piece I did that was kind of... Is it free? A f um, is it free? No, no, no. The bourgeoisie must pay. <laughs> I follow the Robin Hood model. That's, you know, steal from the rich and give to the poor. Um, so the failure that I had was the piece that I was invited to do, I proposed that I would live on the streets of San Francisco for three days without sleeping, and I would have a wagon filled with poetry. I would have no money, no phone, um, no food, and I would have to trade poetry for food, for drink. Um, I, I wouldn't go inside, and I wouldn't sleep. So. Um, and I, and I had this kind of uh, interesting idea that you know this would be kind of like a big event and there were some places, locations were planned through the route where I would meet people and perform. And I thought it would just be people would follow me around like this Pied Piper thing and that the press would follow me and it would be like very exciting and I'd have these audiences. And that just totally didn't happen. Um, the, the, the press never found me. Um, they were, I would get to places and they would go, oh, that camera crew was just here. They went off to find you. Um, there was a review, two reviews of the piece. There's one in the Streetopia book. A, a reporter for one of the local papers reviewed the piece without even actually seeing it because she actually never found me. Um, you know, like, well, you can't complain. Any press is good press, like Oscar Wilde said. <laughs> so what failed for me is what I thought was going to happen, which was kind of this kind of street performance for people in the communities, was replaced by a very interesting experience. My main audience 
was homeless people because I ended up being on the streets all night long and reading poetry. And what I did was I went to places where poetry was written or was kind of, um, kind of famously located in terms of S San Francisco history. So the beat poets hung out at City Lights Bookstore. So I read poetry there. And uh, a lot of the, uh, uh, the avant-garde poets, the performance art poets, read poetry at the San Francisco Art Institute. So I hung out there. And in this book of documentation, there's my poem about the nights I spent in the street, and then poetry excerpts from poems that happened at different locations. So down on Market Street, in a really kind of uh, low-down you know, neighborhood, uh, I read poetry from the Market Street poets there. Um, there's a lot of kind of weird poetry and kind of uh, you know vernacular poetry, the Chicano poetry and the mission. I read some well-known Chicano poets there. Uh, of course, I had to go to Hayton Asbury and, and read the hippie poets and read the digger poets. And I had to go to uh, Golden Gate Park and, um, well, there's Golden Gate Bridge. I went to Golden Gate Park and I, I read uh, lyrics from Robert Hunter, who was the guy who was the lyricist for The Grateful Dead. So it's kind of following those traditions around. But what I found was I'm out on the street more at night, right? And so homeless people are coming up to me and they have no material culture because if you're homeless and you're living on the streets, if you have anything, it gets stolen. If you have anything, it gets rained on. I mean, these, there is a community in the United States that is this kind of hobo, homeless, runaway kids, uh, fa whole families that have lost their housing. And they're on the streets, and they are building a community of oral culture because they literally don't have any material ownership. So what I was doing was just giving out poetry to people. And it was really interesting. So I would read something from like Jack Kerouac. And someone from the homeless community, from the places where I was reading on the streets, would come up and just verbatim recite like an H.P. Lovecraft poem, or verbatim recite uh, Dylan Thomas. And you realize that there was this vital culture of oral culture that existed in fact because of poverty. Mm -hmm. So it's almost as if abundance itself has removed some of us from our own cultures. Thanks, Marshall. Um, on that theme of participation and activation, um, I'm going to if anyone's got a question, there is a roving mic if you're really desperate. There's a couple of things that I, I want to happen also. Um, Mick, on that theme of activation and participation, there's a couple of um, things you might want to spruik for performing mobilities, perhaps, or intimate in terms of participation from uh, people in the city. And whilst you're doing that, we'll see if somebody wants to ask questions. So please do raise your hand if you've got something to ask. I believe this one. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, so there are expositions of journey-based projects at the RMIT Gallery at Story Hall, Upper Swanston Street, as well as at the Margaret Lawrence Gallery at VCA, just over there on Dodds Street. Um, and there are a range of different types of works which are exploring, in performative ways, tensions of mobility 
There's also a range of scales of mobility, or if you like, arcs that different mobilities take. Um, there are two works which very evidently invite direct participation. One is a um, somewhat tongue-in-cheek joke riffing on Paul Klee's description that drawing is taking a line for a walk. So David Thomas and Lorene Vaughan have a collaborative work in both venues uh, where they have a number of lines, um, I'll just leave that there for a minute, but no, they're lines of um, timber um, painted in very particular um, colour palette um, in both ends, in both galleries, um, and they invite people to take a line for a walk, literally, um, and to do what you may with it. Um, and whilst both galleries are open for the next three weeks, um, that you might take one between galleries or you might take one around galleries and they invite you to take a documentation um, of your choice with your line and what it is that you do with it. And I've been observing different kinds of behaviours that people start performing themselves with just the very minimal introduction of a coloured stick which is intentionally proportioned um, relative to human scale. It's very a stick that feels good to carry with. Another um, project that invites direct participation is called Town Crossings. Um, Paul Gazzola and Nadia Cusimano's work um, whereby they've been interested in different forms of social exchange and different kinds of economies of exchange beyond the dominant um, uh, monetary commodity exchange system where you go to the bar up there and ask for a beer and you give $8 to buy a beer and you did something else to earn that $8, you know, etc. So what they have for Town Crossings is um, they have, really the work is about a performative gesture. Through gesture in both galleries they invite you to take a frisbee <coughs> and to cross town with a frisbee, simply playing a game of, if you like, call and response between yourself um, and where your frisbee might land and whether it might land with somebody else to determine the kind of route and journey that you might take on this conversational mode of call and response that's generated by something of a playfulness um, and that you might choose to return that frisbee to either event and that that frisbee somehow becomes a, a memory device that conveys something of the, uh, the trajectory of exchange that has been had by traversing a city with a different mode of operation than our usual ones, which might be, I'm here and I need to go there to point B, or um, I want to have an exchange and I want the beer and I'll give you the money. Um, so it's an interesting, another kind of playful way of opening up how we might encounter each other and space and our own um, trajectories through space in uh, playful and uh, new ways. Thanks.